Hello everyone, welcome to Beyond the Adventure, a podcast exploring why people took on their own unique journeys and what they learned from their experiences. My name is Gareth Brown and thanks for listening. On today's podcast, I have my friend and colleague, Matty, join me. In the first half, we take a slight tangent and ask some broader philosophical questions on purpose before coming back in the second half to talking about a passion project and brand that Matty is developing called Bet Noir, which is born out of her love-hate relationship with sport. Matty, we're live. Hello, Gareth. How are things? They're all right. It's hot in Madrid. Well, everywhere isn't it it's a bit of a heat wave yeah right? it's absolutely boiling uh, thanks for joining you're welcome apparently i was laughing earlier and a friend of mine uh, was showing me a video of how in london they were so unprepared for the heat that all the chocolate in the in the store is melting no oh my god that's devastating <laughs> i remember going around at a supermarket in london with uh, all the cadbury chocolate just like half on its head turned over no wonder they're uh, organizing these Cobra meetings to figure out what uh, the government are going to do about things. Like, what are they going to do if all the chocolate's melting? <laughs> I don't know how much of it is, uh, how much of them are, me- are memes or how much of it is real. I also saw there was a bridge covered in foil. Was that real? Really? Some- oh, I, honestly, like, I have not checked the news at all today. Have you- well, is this all from today? Have you just found this out? This is there's there are viral things happening in the UK at the moment because of the heat. <laughs> You've been People, Santiago, they're probably a bit disconnected. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, I've been a bit away, but wow. Well, we'll see how it goes in the next few days. And Madrid is. Uh, you just come back from Paris. Was that hot as well? When did you get back from Paris? I got back yesterday. Uh, wow. But I'm going back. I'm doing a bit of a silly thing. I'm going um, there and back. I thought uh, I could finish a course online, but uh, the professors decided that they wanted me to be in person to finish it. Um, so, so when you went to the the film school in um, in in Paris, or was it with a professor of a? I'm not sure what the, the dynamic it, is. But... It was a film school. It's like a. It's an intensive uh, workshop basically to teach you kind of all the fundamentals of uh, filmmaking, and then. Essentially, the goal is that you come out of there making your first short film. That's so cool. I love that. It's very cool. So, we... And uh, what's the experience like? Is it like a small group? Is it just like, what's the, like, how has it come together? I, I was quite surprised because all of the, it's small. It's quite intimate. Um, I thought it was going to be a big classroom, but the, there were only about eight of us. Uh, oh, that's perfect, I think. Then you can like, share some ideas and yeah. Well, everyone essentially is supposed to in two weeks make a short. So your the production schedule is hectic. It's like one short film a day. So and then oh the gosh. idea is that everyone plays every role. So one day you're a DOP, director of photography, you're handling the camera. The other day you're an assistant director. The other day you're a director. The other day that you're a head of sound. So you try every, every one of these roles. And then the last kind of three days is just an intensive edit. Uh, and then we we premiere hopefully all of the films together. Oh my gosh! What so you all? Are you actually all in each of those films as well? Yeah. So you're also also the actors, <laughs> the actors. actresses. That's exactly. amazing. You have to try everything, and the only what's a little bit limiting is that well, and also makes you learn a lot. Uh, the only set that you can ha- that you have is a kind of the the locations in and around the school. So you just have to make do with what you have. There are studios, but they're mm. kind of empty. You don't have a lot of props. You have to get quite creative. And you can't just kind of venture out and, and write a scene with like an old man because there are no old men in that school with us or uh, like a metro scene um, because obviously we can't go out and film the metro. So it was very restrictive, which helps. I feel like I need uh, boundaries. <laughs> yeah, it gives you it gives you like some good parameters and then, uh, yeah, you can go from there. Exactly. So the brief was a bit like write a short a uh, story script, uh, something that could be done, you know, in a room or like in someone's bedroom or in a parking lot or something like that. Um, and, and did you have to do that in advance of going to the school or did you have to almost write that when you got there? No, we had to write it when we got there. So they, they asked oh, wow. us to think about it. And then we had about two days to, to, to ideate and write a, a short story script um, from scratch. We did a kind of the, the beginning of it was very uh intense on like the history of cinema uh directing all the fundamentals and then it's like okay they put you in a room and they're like write write your script and it, there's a deadline to it but it's good i feel like i i 
I work well in those conditions. I need pressure and I need... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you thrive under pressure. I need you a like, Yeah. Someone, someone was like, Gareth, you need to write a short story in... I need to have it done in the next hour. You're going to get something done. It might be shit, but that's the whole point. Uh, <laughs> that's the whole point. It's to write shitty scripts and to just write shitty. I think we're especially like maybe us a bit perfectionist and you kind of never write something because you need it to be perfect. But if someone's just giving you a deadline and asks you to write something, the majority of it is probably going to be pretty shit. But that's okay because <laughs> the, sec- the second one, the second uh, the second time around, it'll be a little bit better and a little bit better. I think so that's kind of the point. They kind of force you into breaking that barrier that you have in your head. Yeah. Has, has anybody crumbled yet? Because that's not for everybody, you know, like the, 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 the giving a, a pretty tight deadline, like that can all be a bit too much for people. And then, um, and then it's like almost game over. Like they just crash. Yeah. Or always, always, always everyone just uber keen and just future actors and actresses of the world, future directors. Mentally, everyone is like, I'm going to be a superstar after this. Future Spielbergs of the world. Yeah. Uh, I think for now, you know, I need to go back there and, and find out if anyone's crashed, but uh, I think not really. What's also really interesting is I was also the oldest one in the class. There were a lot of, there oh, were really? Youngest, our youngest uh, student was 17 years old and he was on like the summer wow. on his school holidays. And the, it's just, and it's interesting to see as well. And I said to him, I always said, I wish I was like you when I was 17 and I knew that I wanted to do cinema or film or whatever. Yeah. You have like 10 years on me. Oh my god, it's um, amazing! When I was seventeen, I was just like saving money uh, by working in Marsalan so I could go to Ibiza. <laughs> <laughs> but he is so adamant on uh, the art of filmmaking and the history of cinema, and he's certain that he wants to be in the industry at seventeen. Um, That's amazing. So I wish I had that certainty. But it's a uh, yeah, it's a uh, it's a competitive industry. But I'm, I've learned a lot. Yeah. So, have you got a concept for your short film yet? Are you allowed to share? I, I, yeah, I think so. I'm not <laughs> sure if I if I signed all my rights away to the school. <laughs> um, yeah, I wrote it last week. Uh, it's actually quite similar to the personal project um, that I'm sure we'll talk about in just a second. Yeah. But uh, essentially, it's someone um, like a failed athlete uh that has been going to therapy and she's stuck with her therapist and her therapist can't cut through um and she finally does in the kind of this like dreamlike sequence and um she kind of turns sport into um a bit of an object or a person and like writes almost like a love letter to him or her uh, a revenge letter to sport and kind of breaks through and then um the story falls there Wow, is this uh, fiction or is this autobiographical? <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of both. I pulled, I pulled elements. Uh, I definitely pull elements from from my personal experience. But I did. I went to therapy. Um, I need to pick that back up again. I think um, therapy and uh, going to psychologist, psycholo- going to a psychologist is is a good thing for everyone. But uh, I did that. Um, the scene also goes through a and like a failed athlete that is you know high on drugs and they can't find a way out but uh loves sport but is suffocated by by its constraints and the effect that it left on her so it definitely has some uh some elements of truth i never went to a my therapy session high but uh <laughs> yeah i i only tried therapy for the first time yeah probably 6 months ago uh enjoyed it a lot uh but yeah i'd never really i feel like i should have done it um just like a few times like a couple of kind of dedicated blocks i think i did like eight sessions and um yeah i wish i kind of did a couple of those eight blocks like a few years ago for sure but uh yeah it's very revealing i mean i feel like i've I've still only scratched the surface to be brutally honest when it comes Mm. to uh getting into it because like the first three or four i was just trying to work out what i was meant to say even though i would do you know what i mean like i mm. didn't even know uh i didn't even know how to approach it yeah like a very, very strange um yeah like what do i bring to them you know because like, i didn't i didn't have anything super specific to I, I kind of had feelings but i didn't have um yeah was, i'm a very like uh target driven person so i'm kind of like what am I gonna get? What are my results gonna be in like eight weeks? But what do I? But what do I need to solve? I don't know. Mm, so yeah, you, just... need, you need an, an agenda for the for the conversation. But that's also, I think, your autocritical mind. Kind of, th- this is the whole thing in therapy, and this is where 
when you know that you're becoming like an expert uh, patient almost, or like an experienced person in therapy is that when you break that wall so that you're not thinking about that person in front of you as a normal person in interaction, you need to almost think of it like someone in your consciousness. Mm. So if you're my therapist, Gareth, I can't be looking at you. And this is often what people do when they go to therapy the first time they're looking at you and then they're observing how you react when I say something or your eye movements or, Oh, are they judging me? Uh, I shouldn't have said that. Are they listening? They look like they're dozing. You just need to kind of erase everything that we know about human um, connection and communication and almost speak to your consciousness. So that's what their job is. So rather than thinking, what can I give to this person? Can I make myself look interesting or are they bored or uh, I don't know what to say. I need to come prepared. You need to break all that and just think of that's why often in the kind of the Freudian um, style, people are often on their backs and they don't look at the therapist. Yeah. So that, that, that wall exists and there's no uh, connection between that person talking to you and you and your thoughts. And also well, I... <laughs> go on. to go, to go, to go, especially when there's nothing wrong. So I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, definitely not good at this, but I, cause I kind of stopped going when I started feeling a little bit better, but, um, seasoned, seasoned uh, experts in therapy, they go every week, uh, without, uh, without fault. And it's very religious. Um, and they just go every week and talk about, anything that kind of comes up. And if you have nothing to talk about, then that's the whole point because your unconscious mind starts working. Yeah. I, yeah, I know a few friends who have been gone for years and, um, and obviously they're just going into it now, like on a weekly basis, just very objective about what they're going to get from the session and they're therefore kind of like freeing up their mind a bit more. I feel like you could also, I feel like there's a career path at some point in coaching people to be prepared for therapy. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> Maybe there's a, a pre-phase, a pre-stage that you could uh, you could. I deliver. think so. I think so. Yeah. I had an ex once, actually. And maybe it was a cultural thing because this person was from Spain. Um, but everyone needs help. And this person obviously needed help and, you know, had their own shit that they were dealing with. But the perception of this person was that they felt guilty going to therapy because they thought that they were taking uh, time or resource away from people that really needed it. And and then, but it didn't make any sense. I was like, how do you judge who needs it more? Um, where do you draw the line? And where does the emergency kind of come in? Um, so that's kind of what this person felt. It was like a cultural, one, um, they felt guilty for taking that spot. And two, for them, it showed that there was really something dramatically wrong if you had to go to therapy, whereas I just see it as... Um, and exercise the brain as we work out we should also work on our uh work on our heads and our mental health yeah i agree it's just the um a, a cultural aspect is definitely one i think especially in switzerland it's more like um you just go and seek it out and a lot everything's privatized anyway um but in the uk in particular like it feels a bit more like like from the people i know it takes a lot. They have to like seek out, go to doctors, nurses. It's very, it feels like it's very difficult to get uh, to therapy is in, is in especially through the NHS. And because people are so used to healthcare through the NHS of any kind, that's their norm. They don't automatically think private. And then even when you do get it, you are, you get given six sessions max. And then like, that's, that's kind of it. It's very difficult to get another set. I mean, that's very, very specific, but I, mm. I do kind of understand from certain people's perspectives when you hear those types of kind of narratives and stories, ah, there's a finite number of uh, options out there and therefore I feel like I am taking up someone's time. But I think you're right. I think we just need more therapists and coaches and more people just yeah, being open to, as you said, working out the mind. Mm, and more of, I guess, respect for the practice. It's kind of what's happened with yoga and meditation over the last 10 years. But essentially it's just that even if you have nothing to say, it's a space where you dedicate to focusing on your thoughts and observing them and the very same way that yoga or meditation often do that you sit there with even if you don't know what to talk about with a therapist for an hour or 30 minutes and she's or he is staring at you and you're just like well I don't know what to say <laughs> and maybe that person gives you a prompt or maybe not maybe you in silence that's when your unconscious mind starts to kind of unravel and and the real reason of why you showed up there uh is revealed did you ever find out 
why you actually took the initiative or was it just like a freebie that you got on the street and someone was like, ah, free therapy sessions. No, no, no. <laughs> I, no I, thought, I, thought, I thought about it for a while. I, I think um, for me, I had already done some like coaching stuff. Uh, and you had been I found coached. That, yeah, I'd been coached, yeah. I, I mean, I'd done a bit of coaching on the other side, but more from a work perspective. And then I, I also do... Um, but why did you seek out the coaching? Yeah, exactly. It was more like, um, that's a good question. I think, I think I just really wanted a bit of help with like structuring, uh, my thoughts, uh, because I was very confused about, um, where should like I be right now in terms of whether it be career or whether, whether it be like more thinking about what's the next two, three, five years look like. And I was just kind of thinking like, what, what, what does all this feel like? What's this look like? What? And then also I feel like I want to do like a hundred things like, mm. and, and like, I don't know how to prioritize different, different aspects. And, um, and I think it was, yeah, it was more just that I was just having a lot of more of those questions to myself and also with my partner. Um, yeah. On a regular basis. And I was like, do you know what? I just feel like I need to, um, do some coaching. Also, I randomly did like a, um, a outdoor first aid course, uh, and I met a coach there and I started talking to him and he started telling me about what he, uh, does. Uh, and we went into quite depth about uh, quite a bit of depth because we like did this outdoor first aid thing for like three days. And then after that, I was like sold. I was like, Oh my God, I should go and see a coach every mm. week. And then I did a few of those. And then, um, and then I was like, that's really interesting. It definitely helps certain areas, but you know what? I feel like actually, uh, doing a bit more kind of therapy would be almost a natural, next step to kind of um explore some different areas so yeah i think it was kind of a bit of luck bit of like questioning some of the things that i was uh wanting to structure some of the questions i was having and, and prioritize but then just naturally evolving into um mm. why not just ask some much broader questions yeah uh, our standard yeah. anxieties on life the kind of who am i and, and what am i doing yeah here? yeah philosophical I debates do you think everyone exactly. have? Do you think everyone has those questions, or do you think sometimes I look at people? I'm like, has that person ever had a philosophical debate in their head, or are they as tortured? Sometimes I think, is everyone else as tortured as I am with these yeah, kind of questions on like, yeah, what yeah. are we doing here, and what is the purpose of of this life? Yeah, I think so. I mean, not everybody, not everybody for sure. Some people, I think. Uh... Like I see some people, I'm like, they look genuinely like really happy about where they are now and where they're going and where they're going to be in the next 50 years. But I do think that's the niche. I think that's the the the, the smaller portion. I, I It's a good question. I, I hope that everybody uh, asks those questions. I think so. I think, but I, had, I also had an ex-housemate uh, once, one of my first houses in, in Madrid, and, and I love the guy, but he refused. I think it scared him. He refused uh to think about the kind of the deeper purpose of life uh and we get quite heated when we would have philosophical discussions so it made it did make me realize that he did care and he so, had so, had so those what thoughts would, yeah so what would like the stand be like he would just say i just don't want to talk about this or he would, basically what would just, it be? he basically just thought that every kind of like uh purpose-driven like you know mental health or self-help book it was full of shit and <laughs> People are asking themselves too many questions, uh, which I kind of agree with him. He was very practical about, he was in finances, you know, and he was a yeah. mathematician. So he was very practical about the way he kind of observed life and it was, everything was objective and uh, just kind of do it and don't think so much. Um, whereas I think other people with other maybe reservations or anxieties or maybe a bit less self-confidence, they really um, criticize their own thoughts as well a lot. Uh question question everything yeah i think that in the future the question is going to be asked more and more more so because we won't have an answer to the children like as a child you probably ask that type of stuff more than a lot of adults like often kids are like but why would i do that like oh you've got a tidy room you've got to be like you've got to be disciplined for life okay whatever and then uh and then but like as we in the next like 50 100 years what happens if we're all down to just needing to require to work like three days or two days or less because there's more AI and there's more automation or there's um, like there's what's the like the the guy who 
what was it called Andrew Yang in the US wasn't he just like um pitching for the idea of just everybody should be given like $12,000 per year he was like a presidential candidate like a few years uh, ago yes in and, um, New York I think yeah uh, and basic basic universal income or something like that. yeah exactly but like then all of a sudden we're not necessarily working then uh this the whole structure and narrative about um you need to do these certain things or you need to have accomplished this level of um you need to get to a certain life stage by this point all of those questions kind of like go by the wayside and then everyone's just left with what am i doing here that's a really that is a really interesting topic of conversation i think about that a lot if that if that was if we applied uh basic universal income and everyone was given i don't know I think he proposed something like a thousand two hundred euros net a month, yeah. And didn't really have to work to fulfill basic human needs of you know shelter, yeah, and food. What would would everyone pursue their passions? Or would this kind of create this mayhem in society where nothing really progresses or advances because no one's really like hungry to to make change? Because yeah. nothing's so pressing and nothing's really that urgent. You know, where do you, was, where do you get that? Where do you get the sense of urgency from? Yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. I think um, other than the fact that we I think, we're all dying. Yeah, I'm not that optimistic about a future of not people probably not working. I think that could end up just in absolute anarchy. I hope I would like to. There's like part of me that's like, there's like my heart saying that's going to be amazing. It's going to be a utopia. Everyone's just going to be uh, doing sport every day, or reading. Mm. Um, painting whatever they whatever their passions are but then it's like my brain just saying nah, sounds like a it sounds like a scene from animal farm what in uh, by george orwell and then it just becomes this like uh weird thing where we're all in this socialist movement and all of a sudden there's some angry pigs that just <laughs> take over and uh the world becomes worse than what it was beforehand so yeah i, I think we should do it i think we should do it for a, t- a period of time and if everyone knew that the period of time was fine so like 10 years or the next 15 years from 2022, everyone gets universal basic, basic income, more or less the same, uh, and see what happens. <laughs> and like, I guess there could be schemes, right? That could that could drive uh, more proactivity from people. You know, you could get more money, or you could add to the, your threshold of income if you you know achieve certain things for society that they have to be serving of the rest of society, and even in art or in culture or, or medicine or whatever. Um, yeah, I think I would love to see like some kind of. Um like interim step i'm not sure we can leap that far like imagine if uh between the ages of like 18 and 20 you have to do like a year service to society and then followed by like a year of self-fulfillment let's call it and that would Mm. already like you have to do a year of contributing so you basically let's just say you a standard job would be to work in a in an old people's home because um people are going to be living a lot longer and we probably need um more help and also it would develop them in, 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 in kind of understanding life and all that kind of stuff basically mm. things what we need people to do but at the same time they should just um they'll also learn from it and then a year of yeah not working and then figuring, figuring stuff out and then they make some choices mm. that could be interesting it could be i guess the issue there is everyone's always at a very different stage of like maturity and development right yeah like an 18 year old me might not have been in the same state as an 18 year old gareth yeah yeah, I mean, we're definitely, it sounds like both of us are quite aware behind the 17-year-old in your class. <laughs> oh, yeah. Quite. The same age. Yeah, I don't think I was there. Yeah. <laughs> but um, we've gone properly off a, on a tangent here. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, let's go almost back to your film you're creating because the, uh, the essence of it or, or one of the reasons why you're doing it, obviously there's part part of that is to just develop skills and I know that you're an eager learner and just want to find out more stuff but you also probably want to start doing some filming for a little personal project right yes uh exactly Tell me more about that <laughs> I like that. I should put that on my bio just want to learn as much stuff as possible <laughs> <laughs> um I started to get really into film and cinema and that way of communicating when I realized that the idea that I thought was going to be a fashion brand uh, suited and sounded much better as a film. 
Um, and essentially that is, uh, I, I, I switch between like my theory or my hypothesis or the proposal that um, elite sport or the pursuit of elite sport is the best and the worst thing to happen to someone. Um, and that's the hypothesis that kind of drives me and my life and, and, and purpose, I guess, as we talked a bit about purpose and giving your life purpose. And I yeah. thought a lot about that in, in my teenage years and my years coming out of sport because in sport I was inside uh, the system and it's only when I kind of came out that I realized um, that I was lacking purpose. Uh, because I think when you're an athlete, when you are in competition, that is very clear to you and the goals are written out. There's a whole team of people supporting you. Uh, it's very clear you are the athlete, you are the performer and um, the goal is very clear. The objective is very clear. So you wake up every day and you sleep every day um, with your goals very mapped out um which is very comforting uh yeah. and not everyone gets to feel that but it's also very dangerous um because everything is so specific that when you come out of that um you don't really know who you are why should i go to bed at 12 o'clock why can't i take all of these substances drink all of this alcohol and do whatever I want um, because I don't need to run anymore. Yeah. Um, and the, and you, you don't find a goal and that kind of torments you uh, at the same time. Do, do you um, do you think it's even more prevalent in the sport that you were doing, which is more related to kind of track and field? Because the, the dynamics of your sport at the time, I guess, it was about like trying to knock off like shades of a second sometimes mm. right and yeah. um and therefore it, yeah your life is really like fixed in and so focused and you've got like a narrow objective about trying to knock off the set of time and then every, it, it, it's it's a, it's a simple yet challenging focus if that makes sense yes i was fascinated and have always, and I'm still fascinated by the sport track and field and especially sprinting. Um, it's a very strange sport, but what I, what I love and what I loved about sprinting was, and I think why I pursued it was, and I, this was all unconscious when I made that decision. At one point I, I grew up in Perth, Australia, amongst other places. Uh, my dad is French. My mom is Moroccan. I was born in Paris. They, and we kind of landed in Australia in the early 2000s, 2000, I think it was the turn of the millennium, 2000 or 2001. I was quite young. And at that time, the mass immigration hadn't really happened uh, in Australia. So I was the only kind of, you know, black, brown person uh, in my school at a very young age. Um, and it's when I really discovered sport or that I was good at sport. And I think luckily that I grew up in Australia because they really praise uh sport as a part of culture and education um and that's when i discovered that i was quite good and it was better than most of the other kids in my in my school and i kept pursuing that because uh that's how i got attention that's how i felt accepted even though i looked different um to yeah, everyone else and, and, and people also told me that i was you know different they they pointed it out um but going back to sprinting and and the love for the sprinting, especially 100 meters, was that there was an opportunity there for the achievement to be uh, definite, non-negotiable, uh, and non-debatable. If you are the 100 meter champion in the biggest sporting event in the world, for example, a world championships or an Olympics, where the whole world is watching, for that moment in time, immortalized, you yeah. are the fastest human on earth. And that it still gives me goosebumps when I think of that, uh, I guess, the feat or the achievement. Um, but in essence, it's all very contextual, you know, because you could just be that fastest human on earth for a day or until someone, you know, tomorrow runs a uh, faster time. But the, the possibility that that was even, that that could even be possible uh, just excited me so much. And I think that's yeah. where, where that drive came from. I, I, I had this, this urge and this desire to be, to be number one, but but non-debatable. Yeah, you can't. You can argue around it. You can argue around it. You couldn't. 
give any context towards the reason that you weren't, you could be, without being in the room, everyone knew who the fastest person in the world was because it's there and it's time and it's immortalized. That's, what That's super interesting. I, I kind of find, um, I just really wonder if you had participated in a different sport, whether or not your kind of love-hate relationship with sport would have evolved in a similar way. I'm not sure it would have. Because I mean, maybe it would have, but like, yeah, so. yeah, it's uh, it's 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 fairly. I mean, I think that other other people also feel it, like the whole the whole dynamic of just the entire structured life and the um, building towards clear goals, um, especially in around sport and performance, and and some of the um, the rewards that come off the back of that. It all makes a lot of sense. Then when that finishes, that's like, whoa, that, that must be a very difficult time but i wonder if it for you specifically what that would have been like if you had participated in a in maybe a team sport of some kind or something else i don't, I don't think i would have been as uh tormented because <laughs> <laughs> like how old were you when you kind of gave like i mean you how old were you, when you kind of gave it up if that makes sense you're like and, and, I think... and why was that were you just like how how long did you keep going for even though you knew that you started to Mm. Hate, hate it I think you know often as athletes uh, look, reflecting back on on the time you know when you started to kind of throw in the towel uh, and it all kind of unravels again very unconsciously but you're still in it and you know and you're still trying to do it and you're still running through the motions and you're still doing the mechanics and you're showing up to competitions and you're showing up to training but now I know the moment that I was I started to let go because it's a process as well it's not a day you know I didn't wake up one day and be like that that's it <laughs> yeah, exactly. I finished with, with with track and field. It for me, I was about, I think it was around sixteen years old. So it was quite early, still seventeen. But funny enough, I I kind of peaked at that age as well, um, which a lot of young sprinters do as well, because everything is in kind of prime condition, you know. Especially for a woman, you know, having yeah, really like no injuries gone, or anything as well. Yeah. No, I was really lucky to have no injuries, no no real big injuries, uh, and your body as a woman haven't really hit puberty yet your hips haven't really grown out uh you're not really um fully developed you're still kind of in this prepubescent stage where you're starting to get really strong but you're not hampered uh by you know hormones or puberty or all that entails being uh being a woman so it was kind of before all that and I was running really fast uh, and I was about 16 and I think the time that I started to uh, unravel was uh, around the time that my mum uh, left and uh, my parents got a divorce. I think that's kind of the moment I can I can I can link it to and after a lot of therapy work Gareth yeah <laughs> I uh, I realized that one of the key factors of the driving forces behind my purpose to run was actually my mother um, and the fact that she was there without fault at every competition, she was there spiritually, she was there emotionally, and she was there physically, um, was my main driving force as to why I was running. Uh, I was running for her and for me. So when she left and she dis- disappeared, well, I, she kind of, she left my dad, a uh, big family explosion. Um, we didn't talk to her, me and my siblings, for, for a long time. Um, obviously she didn't show up to my, to my races anymore. Well, I didn't in, invite her. That was the moment I started to see the emptiness, uh, and the sadness in, in athletics and my sport and what I was doing and running there, um, in my lane alone. And I felt completely alone. And it's funny because I, I, I felt a similar feeling and I guess almost parallel sensations, a similar feeling when I found, uh, the depth the black hole in partying and that kind of lifestyle after I left sport. And I, there's a, there's a very similar uh, feeling that there's a moment where you just like, you just feel all the darkness around you uh, and the sadness in what you're doing and you notice it. So in, in athletics, it was not so much. I noticed everyone else around me that was sad because I can't <laughs> project that yeah, onto, yeah. onto my other competitors in, in the lanes next to me, but I was, I remember concisely, it was in uh, a lane at the start of the 200 meter uh, starting line. And 
I felt sad. I was anxious that whole week uh, leading up to a competition. It was a generic Friday night competition at the local athletics track. I was anxious and I didn't want to run. And that whole warm up was horrible. Uh, my whole warm up felt like torture. I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to be warming up. Uh, I was hating every minute of it. And I stood on the track. This was not my last race, but my last official con- competition was similar lead up and I stood on the track and I looked around and it's the first moment that I started a little bit of an existential crisis in sport I looked around me and I looked at the lane that I was in and the line and the guy with the starting gun and and uh, I just thought what are we doing here to see who arrives to the finish line from the start line I'm in a lane with you know eight other girls and we're waiting for this guy this dude to tell us to start and that line to tell me when to finish, and that's it. Uh, so I had a bit of an existential crisis on the start on the starting line. <laughs> did you did you actually did you do the race? I ran oh, that yeah. one. I ran that one. But the last my when I stopped and I decided I would stop running competitively. Um, that same scenario happened, and that time I I actually got down to the blocks. I got up into the set position, uh, and I didn't take off when the gun went off. And that, wow, that's when I knew. Yeah, it was almost like a self-inflicting uh, strike in my head. Yeah, my head was like, "You're not gonna, you're not gonna go. You're done." Uh, it's all very dramatic to be happening on a. <laughs> but this is what I mean. This is you don't know what happens um, in these athletes' heads when you're staring at them from the grandstand or around you. That was my own personal experience that was happening, and I wasn't at an Olympic level or anything like that. But I was extremely tormented. Um, by myself and my sport and the fact that I wasn't running as fast, obviously when you start to drop off mentally, your training's not the same. You don't have the same attention to it, etc. I wasn't running as fast. And when I saw my times slowing, uh, I started to auto criticize myself even more and become more self-aware and conscious of what everyone else thought of me around me. And because I'd gr- grown up as this little sports star, that was yeah. legit- legitimately my email as well. My email, my first hotmail was little underscore sport underscore star. Wow. Underscore, underscore, <laughs> <laughs> underscore rocks. But um, when you grow up as, as a little sports star, you, everyone attributes that label to you. So I thought Uh, I made up the narrative that everyone expected me to win and everyone expected me to run fast and everyone was there to watch me put on a show as I had done, as I had done. That's the reason I I stayed in the sport in when I was 11 and running at my local school carnival, because when you're a three times school champion and you know that people are waiting for you to run and waiting for you to win by a margin of 40 meters, because it's entertaining for them. So I grew up with this uh, mentality that I was there to perform for others. And in turn, that's uh, what made me want to continue running. And I never thought about how much I loved to run and how much I felt good running. Now I know, um, and I'm a, a born athlete, it's inside of me that I love uh, I love to run and I love my body when it's, when it's running and I love to sprint. But that all got a bit lost um, because of the structure of, of sports culture today and the way we celebrate in so many wrong ways, the winner. Um, and just the wave structure of elite sports. Yeah, is, especially is, such is, a, is at such a young age. I mean, because at this point you're like, probably like what, what breaking into like the national team and stuff or the, mm. the national age groups and things in, in Australia. And um, it is such a young age to it's a great thing to be put on that stage, but at the same time, it's a lot of pressure and it's, um, there's a lot going on there without the, the young person really knowing what it is that they're getting themselves into. If that makes sense. Yeah. I think that's, uh, you know, the purpose of, of, of this, of the brand or the film or the, I guess the message, uh, the community that I want to build, uh, is to, one, put that message out there so that even kids see it and they're like, it's it's a part of their thought process as they're competing one. And to help uh, other young uh, girls, especially like me, to realize that they're not alone and what they're feeling is a result of uh, 
of the sports, the, the dominant uh, narrative in sports culture. And, and my mission is to change that. Um, and it's to change the way we see athletes and to change the way we look at sports culture uh, and to put that message in people's head and to protect the athletes. Um, it's, it's one to protect the athletes, but also just to, 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 to not to re-educate because I don't think, you know, the audacity to think that I can re-educate anyone. It's just one, it's, it's one, it's like a personal vendetta. It's like my, I call it my, my, <laughs> my bitter revenge at an industry that chewed me up and, and spat me out the back. So one, it's just, you know, my revenge letter. Um, to, yeah. to sport, dear sport, I hate you, but I love you. Um, because it's on my it's on my heart, so I need to get it out. And I also know that other people think the same. So one is an it's an artistic expression. Two, it's to educate kind of the monkeys in the grandstands, like, hey, we're not your performers. We didn't come here to perform for you. You're watching me do what I love, and yeah. try and make a living uh, of exploiting my own uh, my own kind of physical abilities. We're not here to to give you entertainment, although. Um, our capitalist world kind of pounces on that because it is so entertaining watching uh, people like you and me uh, push their limits and run a sub two hour marathon and run nine seconds, 9.7 seconds in a hundred meters. It's impressive to see that um, that person with a couple of other, you know, genetic makeup is, is really just like, just like you and me. So it, it does inspire us uh, to achieve but they're not there for your entertainment. And then to two, to provide that support for people like me to feel part of a, a community and also to do justice to, this is really why I got into it when I was young. Cause I was uh, finishing my studies in Paris and I did an internship with a fashion, uh, kind of like a young fashion designer. Um, I was doing marketing. And when I started to get really into f- the fashion industry, I was, I realized I was so uninspired by everyone. This is, this is, this is not, this is before the times that kind of Nike and then, uh, uh, or even Off-White, all these brands started to exploit um, sports culture into their yeah. designs and into their collections, um, which they have all the rights to do because they're so rich, that culture is so rich visually as well. Um, but before there was, there was no real sports fashion culture. Um, it was only after that, that these brands really started to dig into the, the culture of, of sport and inject it into the real fashion world and, and real designers started to take inspiration from the sporting world. So that I was, I was, uh, bored <laughs> at the current <laughs> context of, of, of sports and, and culture, and especially in track and field, track and field wasn't sexy. It wasn't portrayed as sexy. Um, and I wanted to create, uh, I wanted to reenact everything that I felt, everything that was so strong about what, what I had felt about track and field and the culture that I had experienced and give it to people in an artistic uh, manner, whether that was through fashion or through uh, video or whatever that was, or the community, a space where you're giving real sports culture justice, not just I'm going to wear a T-shirt that kind of looks like a NFL jersey or dressed like a cheerleader or whatever. I wanted to translate the real sensations of what it was to be a sports star and to grow up in the, in the industry of sport and translate that to, to fashion in the way that I, I actually felt it from someone that yeah. had lived it and experienced it. And I, cause I felt that's the only authority that I had to speak on. I constantly, uh, you criticize myself on what I had the right to speak on. And I'm, I'm sure you do it too. I think we all do it. Uh, you know, imposter syndrome, uh, when you kind of transition into a different industry uh, later on in life. And sport is the one thing that I can have a debate with anything on, with anyone on, or I can get into any kind of conversation because I, I, I'm, I know I'm not lying. When you're not lying and when you're speaking your truth, no one can tell you anything because you, know, you just know that it's your truth. Yeah. And you've also got a, you have a vision for this and you, um, and yeah, as you said, sure, but you're, it's living, def- you're living you're living by your experience and uh, so exchanging and talking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. It's exactly there's no right or wrong here. Exactly. So when you so that allows you to the drive to kind of keep going because no one can tell you you know no well that's wrong because x and y doesn't equal z. Well, but to me it did. Yeah, so it is my experience, and I know that my experience is not uh, individual. It's not so. And, and your process for. Um, 
kind of creating this the space or can I even call it a, a brand or a vision yes, what's the what's absolutely. the best <laughs> descriptor but the um it's a, it's a brand it's definitely a brand um it's a brand it'll start off I, I guess audio visually um and then hopefully uh fingers crossed it'll develop into a, a fashion brand uh and, and how do you think um do you have an idea of where you want it to be in like a few years time or are you kind of more just working with experience right now and getting the first kind of key messages out there developing the right kind of film and stuff that can illustrate what this is and 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 um to two people or, or do you have kind of a a plan for the next number of years like what's your approach to this definitely i think i mean thinking too much about the long-term plan was was the main thing that kept me from getting off the ground yeah <laughs> <Because> <laughs> around, around you know where does it need to go and it needs to have a mission and and etc cetera, etc cetera. but in the long term um i would really like uh bet noir to be kind of a media house that serves to represent those type of stories uh in sport um and put out into the world the uncommon um, and the less talked about narrative in sports culture and explore the, the ideas of kind of pain, liberation, identity, success, betrayal and abuse. And for Benoit to be kind of the hub where those issues are talked about, one. Um, and then eventually in a ve- very, very, very futuristic uh, sense to host kind of events where all of those values uh, come to life and it's in a mix of music and fashion and culture and sports, but real sports and real athletes, um, competitive athletes and all of those worlds intertwining. Cause this is also one of the main reasons for me uh, starting this brand is that uh, I felt like I was put in a box. So when I signed up for drama class in my last year of high school, I was told by multiple <laughs> of my peers what I was doing it in a drama class if I was an athlete. What are you doing taking a drama class? You're an oh, athlete. Really? Wow, that's and, interesting. And yeah. What is an athlete doing in drama class? And this is more common uh, than we think, and this is just ways of society needing to box us in and to label us. They can't understand if you're uh, an athlete and a singer and you also like electronic music and you're really into yeah. fashion. You want to be a fashion designer, but you're you're an elite athlete. Many people, they're just like, wait, wait, wait. pick one, choose one. It's kind of yeah, it's weird about. that we all, that, that a lot of us think that um, we do need to put people in such boxes or like, it's it's weird to be like this thing and also this thing. It's, it's a strange dynamic that it feels like we should be way more progressive in like mm. how we're thinking in that space. But you're right. Like I, f- I definitely feel that even now still for lots of different people being put in a box is just way too common, isn't it? Yeah, we're not we're not encouraged to be. Uh, <laughs> my boss loves it when I say this. Multi-dimensional uh, human beings, um, and it kind of it goes back. It's not a new concept, you know. Like, don't put baby in the corner. Is like yeah, exactly. Um, a typical kind of saying that don't put me in a box, don't label me, don't put me in a box, and that's I guess what athletics and, and society around sport does to athletes. Um, you know, so LeBron kind of picked it well uh, with everything he's doing with Uninterrupted and more than an athlete is his also his slogan, uh, fighting against the kind of shut up and dribble. Yeah. Or, you know, Nomi Osaka, like another example of that, Simone Biles, these athletes that are uh, outraged at the fact that they can't opinionate on political topics or have an opinion on anything that if, if it isn't related to sport. People kind of shut them down, you know, Shh, don't talk, you're an athlete. Just be an athlete. Yeah. Don't talk about politics. Don't do anything else. Don't be a fashion designer. What do you know about fashion? What do you know about this? What do you know about music? Uh, if you're an athlete, so people really struggle to understand that we can be maybe not experts, but severely interested in, in more than one topic and and uh, or, or themes that, and things that are traditionally uh, not connected. It's it's also such a strange dynamic because um, the traits that often exist within people in high performance of any area is often it translates across to other areas. So like if an athlete is a high performing athlete, like a LeBron, <laughs> it's also quite likely that uh, when he puts his mind into studying a topic or investing his time in something else, he's going to dedicate himself and be disciplined enough to really invest in that thought process. And therefore 
he will be very well uh, positioned to articulate uh, his thoughts on a topic that he cares about. Because right, exactly. He, he has a, some traits and he has um, capability within him and he's shown that his entire life that he's able to invest in a way that most of the people probably don't understand. Totally, and transfer those yeah. ones. And that's kind of where I was going with where I would like it in the futuristic sense uh, where it would where I would like it to be to become kind of this house or academy of uh, reformatting elite athletes that don't want to be elite athletes anymore and um, giving them the opportunities to interact with other high-performing individuals in other industries that they're interested in and see how those learnings can kind of transfer um, and rebuild them into society that way. So, you know, I would have loved if I was when I was 16 or 17 to be introduced to another high-performing individual in cinema or fashion and let that kind of inspire me if I was inside slowly uh, being tortured about my kind of future in athletics or that I didn't, uh, the fact that I didn't want to run anymore. And that was very much the case. I did not want to run anymore. I was just interested in, uh, in other things and I wasn't really given the permission by anyone around me or society at large to to go explore that. So you're kind of just like thrown out, spat out the back uh, and left for, um, left kind of scurrying around. And, and Yeah, I love it. I feel like there's a proper space for this. I mean, it, uh, it will evolve naturally, but I can really see where you're coming at with uh, with Bette Noir. Am I pronouncing that correctly? I feel like, my, I, feel like bet, I might not be. Bet, bet just Noir. Bet. Why am I saying better? Who's better? Bet. <laughs> Noir. Sorry. Uh, bet Noir, the, yeah. black, the black beast. Uh, the Bet Noir and Bet Noir, you know, obviously someone's Bet Noir in sport as well. It's a term that's used often yeah. by journalists when they talk about sports. Someone's, uh, I guess, their fierce competitor, the person or the team or the thing that is to be abstained from, right? It's the person that is coming or the thing that is coming at you, uh, but you're desperately trying to avoid and for me that was the realization <laughs> of of this the fact that uh I was not meant to continue you know my life as an elite athlete and uh I needed to be kind of pushed into something else and the, and the kind of my bet wow was sport itself it was the darkness in sport itself and it was kind of creeping up on me and I didn't want to look at it and I was avoiding it uh, and I didn't want to deal with it I didn't want to deal with the fact that I was sad uh, I needed to get out of the sport. Um, but it finally came for me. And for me, that was my bit noir. It was the the realization. So it's almost a bit another, uh, almost another paradox of, of the thing that was essentially coming for me was the thing that saved me. And it aligns very strongly with another kind of, uh, I guess, truism that I have about sport. It's that we are constrained by the very environment that sets us free so for me I felt trapped in my world but it was the only thing that also set me free and made me feel alive so I was living (laughs) in this constant paradox and the art in between those two things opposed like opposites very intense feelings is what I want to to show to the world and display to the world and hopefully that flourishes into something beautiful but living in that constant paradox is um it is going to be very interesting to see how you share this because what you're talking about there's a lot of conflict there but as you said like you want to express it in a very beautiful way Mm. but yeah like the the picture I have in my head of that conflict is um it's quite the dynamic so also just is proposing the message that everything is contextual you know i think it was uh yeah albert, albert camus i think is a french philosopher and he said uh in french il y a rien de hors de context there is nothing out of context everything is contextual mm. uh like so that. everything your message for me ben well, that is that whole message is that it's just it's the opposite every time everything Everything is a paradox. Everything is the opposite. There is not one without the other. You must live with both. So if there's joy in sport, then there must be immense suffering and immense sadness and immense pain. Um, And that's the whole journey of that exploration. The movement between those moments is what makes sport so powerful and why we feel so much 
uh, in sport. But essentially, it leaves many people uh, broken, and that's another one of my kind of my truisms: is that all athletes are uh, <laughs> are fundamentally broken. Yeah, I, I, it's. I also wonder if it's a parallel in 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 lots in in other areas as well. I can't think of as as much of an extreme as sport, but that's partly because I'm also just so close to sport and we work mm. in sport and things. But obviously, in the kind of yeah, I mean, in any of the kind of arts or entertainment i'm sure there's lots of people that feel the same um but i wonder yeah i would i wonder how common that feeling that dynamic is in comparison to an athlete especially a young athlete in comparison to someone in a different area um such as a young artist and then they grow disgruntled with that area and then exactly. they find a weird dynamic with it i can imagine it being very similar I, I think I think so. And I think that is why this message often people will ask me, you know, is it a sports fashion uh is it a sports brand? Like are you are you going to, you know, deliver sports clothes? And and my message was always no. I think that the that precisely that's why I wanted to deliver this message through the sports lens is that it's not just for people that it's not just for athletes, it's not just for people that are familiar with sport, it's for everyone. It's it's that feeling um that we all kind of have of being boxed in and being labeled uh this suffocating thought of that you need to find an identity you need to be someone you need to be able to explain who that person is and defend it with your actions and all of these types of things that uh essentially leave us in this very kind of to- toxic um toxic environment and and for sport it was um that it was it toxicatingly uh just an environment with an intoxicating obsession with statistics. Um, yeah. You know, and, 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 and win loss ratios and there was uh, no room for any context. So physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, mental abuse, all come in hand with the person that you're potentially applauding on the podium. And it's just, and it's not to, we sh- it's not that I'm not saying that we shouldn't applaud them, I'm saying just think about <laughs> what you're clapping for. Be aware of the reasons that you're clapping and everything that the person may or may not have had to have gone through. And I'm not saying that's true for everyone, but for many people and many people on the top of the podium, it is. So another one of my um, sayings is that uh, everyone claps for the wrong reasons and it's just a way of, uh, displaying that you see people on a podium and we clap for them but you don't really know what you're clapping for mm, that is also interesting wow you thought a lot about this i also liked your quote i think on your website it said something around the i desire the things that will destroy me love that I would but desire, yeah i desire yeah. the things that will destroy me in the end <laughs> are you just coming across all of this stuff like naturally are you really like out there searching quotes I, on this no <laughs> <laughs> no, I research it, you know, I research it a lot and I see things and, and that really resonate with the message. And uh, I can, I can see you walking down the street and you see something like that. Yeah, that's it. Like, I, context, I take, I, I take a me. photo of it. Exactly. I'm, not, I'm noting that down. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah, and it's a very natural feeling. I think that's what I urge other people to do is just like be awake, you know, be awake when you're talking to people, be awake when you're walking in the street, be awake when you're reading things. Um, and the more awake you are, I think the more you're, uh, interests or what you gravitate towards become clear and the less tormented you start to to feel I think that's personal experience wow well we might we might want to wrap, wrap it up there if that works for you yeah that was awesome thanks for uh thanks for sharing that yeah anything else you want to cover how do we how do we find bet noir is that Insta website. What's the? Bet what do we noir. wait? Wait and see. What, what's the? What's the protocol here? Essentially, it's wait and see. But I will. Let's leave all the links uh, in the show notes um, uh, when you publish this. But essentially, it's the the website. Keep an eye out on the website. It's bet b e t e uh, double dash uh, noir n o i r dot com and bet noir on Instagram uh, as well. I'll give the notes to Gareth so you can keep and keep an eye out. But I'll make sure to make the most amount of noise <laughs> if I'm proud of the products that, uh, and, and, uh, yeah, the products that we can, that we can deliver essentially. But, um, I hope so. Thank you for having yeah. me on. 
Thank you. I hope I get to see uh, a little cut of this two-week uh, sprint of a short film as well. It'll so, be horrible. It'll be horrible. It's in like a dark studio. I, I'm, with a I'm sure it'll be, it'll be great. All right. Well, thank you so much. And um, well, I'll chat to you soon. Thank you, Gareth. Bye. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening, everyone. Beyond the Adventure is available on all major podcast platforms, or you can visit beyondtheadventure.com for all the relevant links. If you get a moment, please share with your friends and family. And finally, if you or someone you know would like to come onto the podcast, please reach out to me either by email on gareth at beyondtheadventure.com, through the website of beyondtheadventure.com, or reach out via my personal social media. My handles across Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn are all Gareth Brown UK. Thanks again, everyone, and bye for now.